Welcome to Cards Chat, the friendliest poker podcast in town from the world's number one poker community. Hey everyone, I'm your host, Robbie Straczynski. Thank you so much for joining us on episode number 77 of Cards Chat, the friendliest poker podcast in town. Today's guest is David Williams, a highly successful professional poker player, originally from Arlington, Texas, who now lives and is driving in Las Vegas. David has over $8.8 million in live tournament caches across a range of poker variants. Most notably, he came in second place runner-up in the 2004 WSOP main event to Greg Raymer. He also won other prestigious tournaments, including a WPT championship title, a title at the 2009 WCOOP. But he's also well-known away from the poker felt. He's competed on MasterChef, on King of Vegas, and he's an accomplished Magic the Gathering player. He's been interviewed numerous times, but on today's show, we'll try to get to know David a little better. David, welcome to the Cards Chat Podcast. Thank you. Thank you. I'm honored that I'm still, you know, wanted to be talked to. I kind of, I'm, you know, a little bit out of the the limelight, you could say, compared to how I was when I was a little younger, uh, just doing other things. So, you know, if somebody still wants to hear my story and talk to me, that's cool, you know. They're very much so, and I, I can count myself among them because uh, we did get to meet briefly and we've been in touch briefly, but I never really had the chance to speak to you in depth, so I'm certainly looking forward to this next hour or so and grateful for your time. Uh, and also, you said out of the limelight, so that's part of it. We're kind of going to be wondering a little bit uh, what you're up to these days as a family man. But before we get into that, uh, just you know, for those who don't necessarily know, how did poker first come into your life? Um, well, I mean, it kind of, I guess you'd say it's, it's kind of, it was, it was inbred, you know, it was part of how I was raised really. I mean, I'll, I'll get into the actual poker, but as a kid, you know, my, my mother who I was raised by, she was a single mom and her father, my grandfather, my grandparents, I was very fortunate since my mom was raising me by herself, they moved from Louisiana to Texas and lived pretty close and helped raise me. So in a way I had three parents, but my grandfather was always big into gambling I uh, loved to drive to the riverboat casinos in Louisiana and gamble. And my mother did too. And we frequently would go on cruises as family vacations and cruises have casinos. And one of my earliest memories is that five years old, you know, they were a little laid back with uh, how they enforced the rules. Slot machines were appealing. And my mom gave me a couple bucks to play the slot machine and said, you can keep whatever you win. And I seemed to hit like a little jackpot for a couple hundred bucks. So at five years old, winning, you know, a few hundred bucks was pretty sweet to get to kind of keep and just do whatever I wanted with. And then we had, you know, my mom hosted a card game. It wasn't poker. It was like a, another game she played. I don't remember. I think it was called Tonk. Like a game that's, when I look back on it, like it's kind of a silly game. But she hosted a card game. And I would help run the game at a young age, like, you know, serve some snacks. And I remember a few times, you know, she would go to the restroom and say, you can play my hands for me. And I, I would do fairly well. And they were shocked that the kid kind of picked up on the game that quickly. So you could say gambling was kind of in my life, you know, from a very young age. Not sure if that's a good or a bad thing for all, but for me, it seems to have worked out. Um, you know, go to bingo with my mom. Like I say, we went to the horse races when the track opened up in Texas and I gambled there with her. So I was kind of in a gambling family. And then and I, I also, as you mentioned, I played Magic the Gathering, which is not a gambling game, but it is a strategy card game where you compete against other players. And I remember very vividly when I was 
16 years old at a Magic the Gathering tournament in Los Angeles. Uh, after the games were done, you know, the kids were just hanging out at the convention center. I ran into a bunch of guys who were my friends surrounded at a table. I think it was maybe five to seven of them with a deck of cards and some chips. Or maybe they had and I said, what are you guys playing here? called my mother hosting card game, playing Texas Hold'em. And I was like, oh, and they were like, we're having a little tournament here. Why don't you pay five bucks to join? Laughing, thinking I would just, you know, dump off my $5 and lose. And the long story short of it is I cleaned up, won all the money. They, they kept rebuying and I, I was just kind of a natural at it. So then after that, I was hooked. I uh, went back to Dallas as a, a young adult, you know, not quite 18, thinking about this new game I learned called Texas Hold'em. Didn't know. And this is in 1997, you know, 1996. So there wasn't the resources we have now. The internet wasn't really that big of a thing either. So it's like, man, I want to play this game some more that I saw this weekend. And, and I don't know where I, where do I play this game? You know, who do I even talk to? I, I played this cool game that no one I know knows anything about. And I was at my uh, local magic gathering, as you could say, and one of, I didn't, no one really knew my, really enough is Min Wen, not Min the Master, but he had the same name. Oh, place. Uh, I said, really? He's like, yeah, there's a place here that's called the Redmen's. Uh, it's, a, it's like a lodge men's club kind of place where they have holding games and other games. They have poker. And I was like, whoa. I'm like, but I'm not old enough to gamble. He's like, hey, numb nuts. It's, it's not legal. It's not like they're checking IDs. Like, it's, <laughs> if you got money, you can ante up. So I was like, well, how much money do I need? He's like, I don't know. Take four or 500 bucks. They have four, eight, four, eight limit hold'em was their, their main game for me. I mean, they had bigger games, which I later discovered, but $4, $8 limit hold'em. So he gave me the address. I got 500 bucks together, drove down there the next weekend. Uh, I, was, I was in high school at the time. Rang the bell, the buzzer. They asked me who I knew. I said, Min Win sent me. They were like, come on in. And the rest is history. I mean, I started going there all the time. I was cleaning up, moved up to 153008. They didn't have much no limit. I didn't really play much no limit until I was getting ready for the main event, which I got second. I was playing their little like weekly tournament that was like a $30 tournament just to practice. But I didn't know much about no limit at the time. Right. And uh, yeah, that's where I started and just never really stopped ever. And it's funny, real antidote about the Redmen. Uh, Doyle, we talk about it. There's one place, he say, one place in the world where he's not winner. And it's the Redmen's Club back in Dallas, Texas. It doesn't exist anymore from what I've heard. But uh, the guy who ran it was Ray Wolford. His brother, Cowboy Wolford, was a World Series main event. I think he was either runner-up or main event champion, like in the 70s or 80s. Cowboy Wolford, if you look him up. But his brother, Ray, was the one who ran the place. And it had a lot of history. There was a lot of pictures on the wall of, like, the old Texas rounders and a lot of guys who had World Series success. And like I say, Doyle played there. And pretty much everybody back in the Texas days played there. So kind of funny how the place I kind of cut my chops had so much history. It's an incredible origin story, and uh, you know you can't help but smile. Uh, and like it's just it's just really really cool to hear about. So you're saying you know 1997 you kind of first got into that scene. 2004 is when you were runner up. During that interim time, besides you know cleaning up uh, underground in Dallas, uh, I I know you were also basically playing online. Uh, you know you had to have had other some sort of tournament experience 
before deciding, you know what, I'm going to go and play in the main event. That's your first Hendon Mob Cash, which is kind of surreal to think. First Hendon Mob Cash finishes second in the main event. What sort of, um, you know, what made you feel you're ready to play in the most prestigious poker tournament in the world when you don't really have at least documented much tournament history? So, yeah, I wouldn't even say I felt like I was ready. That's the thing, right? I, my experience at that point, I had been playing a lot of cash. Uh, that's all they really had at the Redmonds. And there was another place we played called the American Legion. And I did play online, but mostly online, I played cash games. Also, wasn't really into tournaments until I would say 2003, when I would watch the World Poker Tour, uh, the first season. And I remember I was playing on Ultimate Bet, also cash games, and they had satellites to the World Poker Tour in Aruba. And that was sort of my first interest in tournaments. So I was playing the $30 buy-in weekly at the American Legion, and the Redmonds had one too. But I didn't really have any strategy, know what I was doing, and I never really had much success. I didn't do badly, but I didn't really care about it. It was just kind of like a fun activity before the cash game started. We would just all $30 tournament, sit there, you know, go all in here and there, and bust out, go start the cash games. But then when the World Poker Tour was on and I wanted to qualify, uh, Ultimate Bet had satellites for their Aruba WPT. Right. And I remember I played a few of those. Still, there was like not a lot of resources on No Limit Hold'em. Uh, you kind of just talk to your friends and that, which was me, to me was other magic players because that's the people who are my you know demographic, other young males who also liked poker at the time. And a lot of us qualified for that Aruba tournament. Uh, I went there. It was That was a few months, maybe half, six months. So I think I can't look at the day, but it was in 2003. Uh, it was the Aruba that Lane Flack won. Rest in peace, Lane, man. Good buddy of mine. I met there, actually, when I was nobody, which is funny. I met Mattisau there. I met all these guys, and I didn't have my second-place World Series finished. So I was just like a kid from Dallas who was like 22 years old, and I met these guys, and they were all so friendly. That's one of the things I remember, Eric Lindgren. So anyways, I go there. Um, I remember I took a horrendous beat to be busted out the first day. And it was so bad. Mike Matisau obviously berates the guy who put the beat on me. <laughs> what are you doing playing that hand against this new guy? He's not played any hands. And I just kind of shrugged it off and went and enjoyed the vacation. I could care less. And again, I spent most of the trip playing cash games. So I wasn't really too into the tournaments. Uh, but then the moneymaker year, you know, I had already decided I, from playing at the Redmen and talking to a lot of the guys who uh, I, I was familiar with, they were like, you know, you need to go out to Vegas and play. They clearly recognized I had some some natural, you know, a gift for poker. And the Moneymaker episodes came on and I was like, okay, this is pretty damn cool. You know, I'm going to I'm going to give this a go. So I wasn't going to focus too much on tournaments. I just decided, you know what, I'm doing well in the cash games. I'm just going to take ten thousand dollars and give it a shot. You know, whatever. If it ha next next summer is what I said. Next summer, I'm going out to Vegas. I had been there with my family growing up, but I'd never really been for poker much. Uh, I'd been one trip to play some cash games. And I remember talking to a guy named Danny. Uh, Danny, I can't remember Danny's last name. He was an old bookie that played in the games with me. And he was he would always kind of take a piece of me in the, the big PLO game, which at the time was big. It's not big now. It was like $500 buy-in PLO, but I was like, this is crazy. you know. And he was always taking a piece of me. So he's like, hey, kid. He's like, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to buy a piece of you out. If you go out and play that main event, I want, I'm going to, I'm going to buy it 50% of you. And I was like, yeah, we can do that. You know, sure. You know, I don't care. Why not save, save some money. 
And then I was practicing on Poker Stars, and I played a double shootout, which was like you win your nine-handed table, and then you win your next. And you win, I think it was $182 the buy-in, and then you win two tables, and you make it into the main event. And I remember I was practicing and played a few of those, and I was sitting in my apartment in Dallas one night. Girlfriend was asleep at the time, and I played the double shootout, won the first table. And the second table, I got down to three-handed. And I was a smoker at the time, and I didn't smoke in my apartment. I just remember vividly. I went to the stairwell with my laptop and a cigarette to have a cigarette, and my buddy was over. And I was playing this double shootout, got kings, won the table, won the seat into the main event, was freaking out, which is kind of funny because, like, it's really I won 10 grand, which is a lot of money. But like I said, I was going to already spend my 10 grand. I was My my bankroll was six figures from cash games, you know. So it's not like life-changing but it felt so incredible to win because i'd never really won anything and hold them i didn't know how to play heads up and it was like i won a double shootout i won two tables i was going to the world series i remember i called my mom i called my friends i, I was so like oh i'm going and i remember i told that guy danny next time at the redmond or at the american legion one of the clubs it's like hey i won my seat on poker stars and he's like well that's all right kid you go ahead and you just you know i was just looking to help you out i'm okay i'll pass you know he just like he, he backed out, which is kind of funny because, as you know, how that worked out. He was Very kind of funny. like, oh, damn. So uh, <laughs> I qualified for that. I decided to play a, some to practice. I played some more World Series tournaments. I mean, more qualifiers. Didn't do really do well. Uh, went out to Vegas the week before. I remember I was like, I'm going to play an A tournament. It was at Binion's that year. You know, it was the last full year at Binion's. And I played a, I think it was a $2,500, maybe a 3K no limit tournament. And I remember I got trapped by somebody with Ace King. I'm trying to think of how the hand went. I can't remember how the hand went, but like I thought there was no way the guy had that big of a hand. And we got all in, and I had Ace Queen, and yeah, Ace King. I think it was uh, David Pham, actually, is who it was, because I remember I like, I knew who people were, and I was very right. impressed right. to play with these guys. And he trapped me with Ace King, beat me, and I was like, okay, I'm done with this. And I enjoyed the rest of the week, just doing other stuff, playing cash games, visiting Vegas with. My best friend at the time, Noah Boken, who uh, I knew from Magic Gathering, who is a Dutch poker player also. Uh, and we were both there for our first World Series. And then the rest is went for day one. And seven days later, we're still there. Well, you know, we, like, uh, seven days later, now we're 17 years beyond that. You know, last uh, WSOP, which took place over in the fall, you saw some success as well. You know, you're still hitting the felt, still, you know, 15 caches uh, in a second place in an online event, second in a 1500 seven card stud. Um, would you say that, you know, as far as poker, is it still tournaments that you're mainly doing or is it cash games or a little bit online or just sort of a mix of the three? You know, uh, it's, I've considered myself and a lot of people like to say they're not a professional, they're recreational. That's like the thing now, all these like old pro, Oh, I'm not a pro so they can get invited to games. But the truth, the fact of the matter is I don't really consider myself a, a pro in a sense, you know, I still, that's, I guess I pay my taxes as a professional and I do derive income from poker, but I don't really focus on it as much. You know, I've done well enough in other areas where I don't have to make that my main focus. And my main focus is my daughter. Uh, I have an 11 year old who I'm picking up now in the carpool line and sh she's uh, in fifth grade of primary custody. So, and I've had primary custody for about five years. So those five years that I've had it, I've kind of taken a step back from poker and something I noticed who someone said the other day in an article, uh, they said, it's hard to be, I think it was the guy, Tony, who won the, the 1 million. Somebody was, was talking about his, 
he said, it's hard to be a good dad and a good poker player at the same time. And that's very true. Obviously it's possible. I'm not claiming other people may have done it or not, but I, I definitely see that because to be a good poker player, you really have to be, you have to eat and breathe and sleep, you know, sleep it. It's all you have to do. And you have to suppress those emotions. And it does a lot to you that makes it hard to be a good father, you know, because when you be a good father, you really have to be emotional. You have to connect, you have to be present. And you, you want to be a good example. So there's so many things that conflict if you're doing both. You might have to be at a game and then the game is so good. You're like, you know what? I'm changing my plans. I'm staying here. But then if your daughter, you take her to school or she has a recital, you can't miss those moments. Or if you stay up all night and then after school, you're tired because you've been gambling and your child is like, daddy, look at this. And you don't have it in you. And you, it just doesn't work. Right. I found for me, at least. And a lot of people seem to echo the same. So I decided, you know, I'm really going to put poker on the, the back burner and focus on being the best father I can be. And poker isn't going anywhere. And I know that one day she'll be off to college or even high school when they don't want to talk to you anymore. And I can start ramping up and playing more poker and, and it'll still be there, you know? So I really put it on the back burner and really kind of didn't play very much at all at first. The past few years, she's getting a lot older. You know, she's 11 now. She's got all her friends. And I'm not to say I'm still not present, but it's like, you know, I can play more. You know, the World Series of Poker, she she goes and visits her mom. Okay, I got six weeks. Let's play some tournaments. And now it's funny because I'm playing for fun. You know, I obviously want to do well. Um, I give it my all. But like, before it was almost like you get burnout or you take it for granted. Cause I would be there playing. If you look at my average from like 2005 to 2010, I was playing 30 to 50 tournaments a year. You know, I was playing every, as soon as I was out of one, I'm in the next and multi- multiple times I was playing two or three at once where I'm in a tournament and I'm running to the next tournament on a break and running back and forth. I mean, it was all about volume and making sure you don't miss a tournament. And I was changing everything around me to make sure I was always available. And even if I didn't want to be there, I was making sure I was there. And I think if you do that for so long, you start to take it for granted and it affects your, your performance. And I noticed now this summer and even last summer and what made me do it more this or not summer before we had COVID, but the one before I am there for a different reason. I'm there for enjoyment, but I also know like, listen, I'm taking this time away from my daughter and my, now my girlfriend and my mom, I want to make the most of it. But I really, truly am more present at the table. I enjoy the moment. I'm like, you know, win or lose. Wow, this is fun. I'm here. I'm at the table with other people. I'm playing cards. And I think the whole COVID missing the summer made me also reframe that and and really appreciate the human interaction. So I just had a really great time and really enjoyed being there this previous summer, which I think showed in my results. I was able to do better. But it also like one of the things I noticed because, you know, my girlfriend, we've been together for now over a year almost a year and a half-ish, but that was her first summer of a World Series. And she didn't get it because there'd be days where I didn't feel like playing. I would wake up and be like, yeah, I'm just going to stay home and watch some TV or go to the park or do nothing. I'm going to do anything else. And she'd be like, but baby, I thought you were playing that tournament today. And I was like, yeah, I don't want to play today. Well, why not? And I was like, baby, I don't have to. And like, that's the beauty of it. If you don't feel it, don't go. Like why? Sure. You, you could go there and maybe things change. And sometimes I would say that. And then five hours later, I'm looking at the updates. I'm like, ah, oh, damn it. Okay. 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 I'm going to go. And I would just get in the car and late register and play. But it's like, Hey, I'm blessed to be able to have that ability to choose, pick and choose and late reg. And if I don't want to play, don't not play and skip. But B, I think when you're at that place, it makes it a lot easier to focus. And I think you'll just do well because you appreciate every little thing more, you know, Back in the day, three, four years ago, I would sit at the table. 
I would have my iPad out. I would be doing anything I could between hands to not be there. And I felt like, oh, I know what I'm doing. I don't need to be there. This is like a 1500 no limit. Who cares? But like now I found like I had some work to do and I was like, oh, I'll take my iPad and do the work while I'm at the table. And I couldn't get anything done because even when I'm not in hands, I'm watching everything. I'm like intrigued by how people are playing hands and kind of taking it back to that level of when you're new at poker and everything is so exciting and amazing. And I realized that kind of reset was good for me. And I think it, it, a lot of players could probably use that once you've been there forever could use a good reset, you know, a step back, start over, be, be present at the table. I think it's all about being present. Pretty cool. I saw you outside the Poker Go studio just a couple of weeks ago. You were there for the Storm X Invitational, and you certainly looked like you're having a good time, mingling, you know, very, very much echoing what you were saying as, you know, wanting to be there, enjoying being there. And yet, of course, by what you're saying, you're a very active hashtag girl dad. I got a couple of girls of my own. I know what it's like. It's good stuff. It's obviously very different. So, so I'm kind of wondering, do you even have some sort of a day-to-day routine? How do you sort of switch on off from, you know, dad life to poker life or, you know, how do you, how do you find that balance? Um, it's all about a good schedule really, you know, like, so like my day to day in general, you know, is I wake up at six forty-five. my daughter, usually I used to wake her up and now she's like that age where she was excited to get to school. She wakes up first with her own alarm clock. Dad, wake up. It's time to wake up. Yeah. She wake uh, help. Hold on. Are you there? Yeah, I'm still here. I hear you. Lost the uh, lost visual, but we're still here. I mean, it, I got to scoot up, put it, uh, put it to driving mode, and it says like Zoom is you are driving, and it won't let me like so let me scoot up because the carpool car got out of the line here. It's all, all good. right. There we go. Put the car back in park. That's kind of cool how it knew. <laughs> okay, how do I put it back in? There we go. Yeah. Okay. And for those who are just listening and not watching, just David definitely in uh, in girl dad mode, waiting for uh, his daughter to get out of school. So thanks for taking the time again. So go ahead. Yeah. So um, I wake up. We get ready for school. Make some lunch. She's a little spoiled and doesn't like to eat the school lunch, which really pains my ass having to make lunch every day because she won't eat just a, a little sandwich either. I'd have to cook something, make some chicken, or, or it's just come on. Yeah, but anyways, you get, you, makes, you know, she knows who the good cooks are. So yeah. <laughs> I make some lunch and then, um, you know, I do some, do various projects I'm working on or whatever I have errands for the day, maybe some groceries for the house or, you yeah. know, lunch with my girlfriend. I fill the day pretty quickly because then by two o'clock, I'm back here to pick her up. And then she's involved in a lot of activities. So after school, get her a snack, get her to volleyball practice, get her to her uh, Broadway Kids Academy, gymnastics. Uh, so many things. And I'm like, you know, I'm that dad at the volleyball games or I'm, I'm all about it. Then cooking dinner, doing homework, studying for tests, go to bed. I mean, it's like I'm in school again, but then on the weekends we have, a, we have fun, but like you say, how do I kind of switch modes? So like, for example, the storm X tournament you saw, um, I'm friends with the CEO of storm and I'm very involved in various crypto projects. So I was invited to that. So as long as I know things are coming up in, up in advance, I'm able to make adjustments. So like her mother, me and her mother are still very good friends. She was visiting and she said, okay, well, I'll come in on Thursday. That tournament, I believe, or that tournament was on Thursday. So she came in on a Wednesday. She said, I'll pick Lily up from school on Thursday. So I dropped her off, which made for me being very tired at the tournament. You know, that happened at the World Series a lot too this fall because it wasn't in the summer. I was just tired because I had my daughter. But anyways, my, uh, my ex-wife picked her up from school. I went down to the Aria, played the tournament, was able to stay out and know, hey, she's in good hands. She's with mom. 
enjoy myself, have fun at the tournament. And that's kind of how I do it. Like, like I say, it was a really tough challenge, the World Series being in the fall this year. Normally, in the past, you know, since she's been alive, my daughter, the World Series has always been in the summer. That's easy. With split custody, we do it to where those first six weeks, she visits mom in Texas. I have the six weeks off. I'll play the World Series of Poker. And then my half of the summer will be after the World Series of Poker. It's worked out perfect. But this year, the World Series was during the school year, right? It was in October and half of November. And I knew it was going to be tough. Um, like they say, it takes a village, though, to raise a child. I had help from my mother lives in, in Vegas. You know, she's a flight attendant. She works, but she, I know her schedule. She's like, anytime that you need help, I'll be there. My girlfriend is wonderful. Her and my daughter get along great. So she's like, I'll also be there. I can pick her up at school. I can wake up and take her some mornings if you want. And then her mother, also, we figured out our custodial schedule where she would come in for half the World Series some weeks. She would stay for five or six days with Lily at her house here and then fly home. So between those three women helping me out, and then in addition, like if Lily needed to be picked up from school or go with a friend that I could get her after or one of them could get her, we made it work. Uh, it was tough. You know, frequently I would wake up at 6.45, drop her off at school, uh, go home and do a little work, take a shower because, you know, the tournament started sometimes 10 a.m., 11, get to the Rio. And then I like, you know, I was really feeling it. So if I get knocked out of a 10 a.m. tournament, and there's a 3 p.m. tournament starting. And usually it's a mixed games, which I love. Hop in one of those. But those are finishing at midnight, 1 a.m. So I'd have like either my mother or my girlfriend pick her up at school, get her dinner. And I kept making day twos. That's the funny part. Like not a bad problem. But sometimes you think, well, I'm going to get knocked out early on some days. I can go pick her up. Right. I'll right. be out. I'll get knocked out on the first level. Just didn't happen. Right. Hardly ever. So I'm there till 1, 2 in the morning waiting for these. You know, my the best scenario would be to stay in the early tournament because then we finish by midnight. I'd make it to the late tournament, bust out at two in the morning, grab a quick bite, get home. Everybody's asleep. I wake up, take my daughter to school because it's just a habit. So it was hard to get sleep, but all in all, I don't regret it. It was a fun experience. I'm glad it's back in the summer, at least. Yeah, <laughs> it'll be, a, you know, it'll be more. The schedule will be better. I'll get more sleep. So I, I think, you know, hey, if I had pretty good summer or pretty good summer as we call it pretty good world series this fall i can only imagine you know now that i'm able to get some sleep not have to worry about taking her to school sure. hell i might it might be a, it might be a big summer for me this year you never know i sure hope so in every possible respect i love you know i love the way you describe in such detail i mean like i'm nodding my head and smiling because it's just and i'm sure so many folks are saying you know man or woman whoever's listening to it it's so relatable <laughs> it really is it's just yeah that's what we're you know that's number one priority is our kids and that's what we got to do and you know all the other stuff we'll just figure out how it fits in. And, and I love that, you know, you give credit where it's due to all the you know ladies in your life. And I, I also want to explore that a little bit, go up one generation. Uh, I still remember, you know, following, I think it was, I think it was 2007, maybe 2006, you know, when ESPN was following both you and your mom, Shirley, uh, at uh, the tables, you know, she outlasted you, that sort of a thing. I'm kind of wondering how poker brought you to even closer together because obviously you're very close you said single mom bringing you up but to have that additional layer of something you were so passionate about and she also really got to enjoy that must have been a really cool thing for you yeah and it's funny because i wouldn't say we fell apart or anything but like as you become you know a young man and you come into your own and there's girls and there's hobbies you know as I grew up, it was just the two of us. But then as I became like 16, 17, went off to my, I went to like high school and was playing magic and doing things. You know, as you start to do that, your parents become less like your buddy, buddy anymore. It's just your mom, you know, it's, for me at least. You're like, I love my mom. 
But at the time, I started to go off on my own and do my own thing. But then something happened because I always knew my mom was into gambling. And I would say when I went to the World Series of Poker, I, she said, you know, I'm coming out. I want to watch because she also watched on TV. And like I say, she was a gambler herself. And obviously, it's not like I'm saying we weren't close. But we weren't like we are now. But she's like, I'm coming to watch. And I was like, cool. And she came out. And she didn't know much about the rules of Hold'em, but she picked up pretty quickly. And she was on the rail supporting me. She was very, people still bring that up, the 2004 coverage, how she was just super supportive. You know, she was there from hand one on the rail, watching every hand all day, every day. She would not leave. She was my good luck charm, you could say. And afterwards, she got into it. She was like, I'm going to play more and more. And I remember I was... I was reluctant at first. I was like, oh, I don't want mom getting involved in gambling. But, you know, it's like she was a gambler herself. And I she was into slots and blackjack. And I'm like, you know what? I'd rather her play poker than these games. And a lot of people ask me like, oh, you taught your mom or would ask her. He taught you. I never taught her a thing. Now, I will currently I give her advice. But like she read books. She went to forums. She's into like this uh, Wednesday poker discussion group here in Vegas that she oh, goes to. I didn't know I she think it's not. She goes to it. I mean. She doesn't go as much anymore. I think maybe it stopped with COVID, but before she was going here as much as she can when she was in town, she's applied sure. to it. Uh, Ricardo's it used to be, right? Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. yeah, different restaurants. It's moved over time. Okay. But she's, you know, she's built her own community or, or joined her own community in Vegas. And she's sort of kind of used resources and taught herself. There's still hands. She tells me that I'm just like, mom, what are you doing? You know, when she tells me hands, but hey, that's, that's how poker works. Sure. I would say even to this day, she plays more poker than I play. She plays on WSOP.com all the time when she's here. I only play the big tournaments here and there when I'm really feeling it. She's always fun. I mean, I call beep, beep, beep in the background. She's like, oh, I got to go. I'm in the middle of a tournament. So I would say she started playing more and that really kind of brought us together because we talk about poker. We're in the same location. She comes to the World Series and plays her own tournaments. I mean, she's got her own poker bankroll that she uses to buy into tournaments and play satellites and saves, you know, winnings for the next year. Like she's already got saved up for her main event. She's only played the main event a few times. You know, she won a satellite once. I think that year you watched, uh, she was sponsored. And then she just bought in once. I think I took a piece. And then now she's been kind of saving her winnings in Zoom poker, or those blasts, as they call it. So she's already got a bankroll ready for the upcoming World Series. And she schedules her work schedule to have some time off. She loves it. And I love it. And we're both there. So it's good. It's kind of funny because when I need her to watch Lily, she's like, well, if I'm going to be in the tournament, <laughs> right. I don't know how it's going to work. So we, we find ways to make it work. But awesome. uh, yeah, it's brought us closer together. Like I said, we talk and now, but then, and then I would say with me having a daughter, right? It's her first and only grandchild. And that really, that's why she moved out here to Vegas. And now she lives close to me and she comes over all the time. You know, I will watch her play. She'll come over a lot and she'll be in a tournament on Sundays because she likes to just come over and hang. We have dinner and I'll look at, what are you doing? She's like, oh, I'm planning this tournament. I'll look, okay. And she, she'll be, you know, she texts me her results all the time. So yeah, she's, I would say she might be more into poker than me. I mean, well, poker almost, I guess, didn't necessarily become a thing for you. I mean, obviously, you know, you you ran well. You had all the story that you're telling us about. You went to Princeton, though, and I don't imagine at that time when you say I'm going to apply to this school and that sort of thing. You maybe you had a different sort of idea or career in mind at some point. What was it, and what made you change your mind and say, you know what, no, not really for me. Um. You know, I just, I was at Princeton and I, I think the problem is the decision-making process of what college to go to. That's mm -hmm. where, if I look back at what the mistake was. So if you think about it, right, I grew up in the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex, 
pretty, you know, it's a pretty big city. It has a lot of people there. There's a lot of, it's, there's everything. I got all my family there. I got all my friends from college and high school, not college, but from high school, from, you know, all my friends that I grew up with. We've got sunshine. It's just a different environment in Texas. We've got warmth. And then when it was time to apply to college, I was always very successful academically. Um, I applied to all the best schools. I didn't put any thought into where I wanted to go to school other than ranking, which is a huge mistake. And I, I, I'm glad I'll be here to guide my daughter from my mistakes and to say there has, there's more to what, where you go to college than how good of a school it is ranked by some arbitrary ranking system. But for me at that time, being a very competitive kid, going to, I went to a specialized high school called the Texas Academy of Math and Science that was the brightest and best kids in Texas, like 200 of us who are all like math, science, nerds, whizzes. And I wanted to go to the best school in the country. And the best schools in the country at that time are Harvard, Stanford, Princeton, Yale, MIT. These are like the best schools. So I applied to all of them and a few others, and I got into all of them. I, I 100%, I got applied to seven schools, got into seven schools, all the best schools in the country. And I remember I was super proud of that, as I should be, but as you should be, I, absolutely. I, I should have put some thought into where to go. I should have toured the schools, right? We've got Stanford on the West Coast, totally different vibe than yeah. Princeton on the East Coast, which is in New Jersey, but it's not even in like Jersey, like close to New York City right. with a lot of stuff going. It's in the middle of nowhere. Right. And, I, and then we've got Harvard and MIT, which I got into, which are in Boston, which is a pretty big city. But you've got three different areas, right? You've got yeah. middle of nowhere, New Jersey. You've got Boston. You've got West Coast, Stanford. And then I got into some other schools in the, around the country, too. But instead of touring the schools, going to visit the schools, seeing what this what the life was like, interviewing with people or asking students who were there, hey, what do you think? Or finding alumni and getting opinions. I did none of that. The only school I visited was Cornell which, because I had a friend who played Magic who went to Cornell in Ithaca, New York. Yeah. And I remember I didn't like it there. It was frozen. It was cold. It was dark. Also, there was nothing nowhere. there. Yeah. <laughs> middle of nowhere. That should have been a red flag for me. And I was like, you know, I'm not going to go here. But the mm -hmm. funny part is I don't think I, I didn't go there because of that. I didn't go there because it was ranked lower than Princeton and Harvard. I was like, I'm going to either Princeton or Harvard. Uh -huh. Those are the two best schools. And I'm going to one of the best schools. Wow. So I ended up just picking Princeton because that year, if you looked at like some ranking system, it was number one. I was like, well, that's the tiebreaker for me. And when I got to Princeton, um, it was a huge shock, right? First of all, you get there and the winter time is cold and dark. It gets dark early. And it, even in the daytime, the sun's not out. It's snowing, it's raining, it's gloomy. Where in Texas and like here, Las Vegas, I need sun. And I didn't realize how much the sun affects your mood. So I'm here in this place that's damp, dark, and cold. Mm -hmm. I don't know anyone. I went from like Mr. Popular in school, like everyone liked me, everyone knew me. I also had all my family, my aunts, my uncles, my mom. I just had a huge system of love and support around me to where now I'm in New Jersey with a bunch of kids from a different demographic, to say the least. You know, I'm on scholarship. My mom was middle class. We weren't poor by any means, but we didn't have a lot of money. Not like the money of these kids in Princeton. You know, I've got roommates who's like their uncle's names on the building. Like, oh, that's that this endowment. You know, my, my dad donated here. Everyone, you know, everyone around me was from a vastly different economic environment. Yeah. And being a minority, I'm sure it's different now, but there were not many minorities there. And they're probably not now, but comparative to how it was in 1998, in 1990, 1998, 
I don't remember seeing very many minorities at all. Not to say like, oh, I have to be around minorities, but it's good to see people like yourself, people yeah. from your environment, people you can connect with and bond with who have experiences you have in the past. I had none of that, right? I'm around a bunch of rich guys, rich kids that I, I don't know anything about. And I had a college job for my scholarship in the cafeteria, right? I'm serving food, making sandwiches. And my roommates, you know, they're not doing that. They're partying. So then they come in there to get food and th there's the guy, you know, like, oh, hey, make us a sandwich, kid. You know, and there was, it just didn't feel good. I wasn't happy there. And I missed everybody back home. I missed the magic tournaments, my friends. And I was like, you know what? After, I would say, after the, sort toward the end of the first year, I was like, I don't want to be here. But I didn't want to let down my mother and my grandmother. I was really, I, I didn't want to let them down. Here I am at this amazing school and I don't want to be here anymore, but how do I break that to them? Right. And I remember I got really sad and depressed and the teachers noticed it. And I had a meeting with like a counselor and they, they finally were like, you need to talk to your, your mother and your grandmother. And I remember I talked to them both and I broke down and was like, yeah, I really, my grandmother was like, honey, if you're not happy, you should come home. And I was like, do you mean that? Because I don't, that's my biggest fear is letting you both down. And they were like, listen, we don't want you to be somewhere miserable. You would be letting us down if you stayed here and you didn't want to be here. So I took a leave of absence. They gave me like, like, a, they were like, if you ever want to come back, you're more than welcome. You know, like your grades are great. You just not happy. So it's, a, it's fine. You can leave. You can come back when you want. And I remember I left back home and I was so happy to be home. And then I took an internship at Texas Instruments, uh, known for their calculators, but they actually make semiconductors and do a lot of things for in the electronics and electrical engineering world. I took an internship there for a while. And this is kind of where poker really turned. I was playing at the Redmonds. I was playing at the American Legion, but I was also working at my internship. My internship was in a lab, office slash lab. I would have to be there at eight in the morning, downtown Dallas, not downtown Dallas, but like in the industrial area, I'd go to Dallas, go to the lab. Uh, work on semiconductors all day, do tests. It was kind of boring and mundane. And then I would get out of there at five o'clock and I would head on down to the poker room. and I would jump in and play a game of poker. And I'd play all night, got to be at work the next morning. And it was wearing me out. But I realized, you know, this internship was paying me whatever they were paying me. I don't remember. But I'm like, I'm, I'm making way more playing poker, playing yeah. four and eight and 15, 30, 08. Yeah. I'm playing 15, 30, 08. And one night I'm making what they pay me in a like two week period, in a pay period. Yeah. And I was like, why am I screw this shit? Yeah. Sorry to use the lamp. I was just All like, good. screw this. And I, I remember one day I just started slap. I, I, I should have handled it better. But again, I'm like 18 years old, 19 years old. <laughs> and I just like kind of stopped going and I would show up around noon at lunch. I would kind of just walk in there, look at what I had to do, check some boxes, <laughs> sit, sit there for a while, type on the computer a little bit, stroll right. out of there. And eventually one day the boss comes in and he's like, where you been? And I was like, right. you know, I don't really want to be here. He's like, well, why are you here? And I was like, you're right. We shook hands and I, I dipped out. And I was Love like, it. you know, I'm going to, I'm going to play some more poker. So I played a lot more poker and that's really where it started to pick up. I was like making my living because people always ask me, how did you know when to go pro? When should I go pro? I want to drop out of college and go pro. And I'm like, it's not like I decided I'm going to go pro. It just kind of, morphed you know it kind of just happened like i was i was doing two things and the balance started tipping this way towards poker i was making more money and realized my time was better spent at the card room than at that internship um and i was like you know what i've been doing this long enough i'm making yeah. enough money 
why am I going to the other one? Like right. economically, it makes much more sense. So it was, it was like a gradual decision. It wasn't like I'm going pro tomorrow and I'm just like quit my job and walk into the poker room. I'm a pro today. Like it wasn't like that. Um, I'm blessed that it worked out. I'm blessed that poker was a lot easier back then. I mean, my opponents, you know, none of them knew, bless their hearts. It, the fact that I walked in there having never really played limit hold of the first day and just crushed them all and was like, what are they doing? And I'd never really played the game myself. And I ordered a few Sklansky books, you know, the two plus two publishing. They had a bunch of books back then. I ordered all the books I could order and would read them front to back. And I just, that's next thing you know, like that was my career. It's pretty cool. Like it's a, obviously a wealth of experience, life experience that you had around that time. And I think that, that, you know, humbly I'll say, like, I think that'll serve very well as far as, like you said, guiding your daughter on wherever her path takes her. You know, there were a lot of decisions along that path that you had to make. Uh, and, you know, thankfully, like you said, things uh, worked out. And I'm sure, uh, you know, your, your daughter has some really good guidance uh, to have as she as she takes her way. Um, I do want to actually explore one other thing. This one kind of like popped up to me. I was like, you know, when you were there, I saw also Brian Ballsball there at the Storm X Invitational. And I was like, wait a minute, that's right. You know, you're part of Polka Royalty. That's the, the talent agency. You've been with them for a very long time. And, you know, obviously you've had a number of different opportunities. You were part of the, the stacked uh, video game with Daniel Negreanu. You were part of the, the game show King of Vegas, all, that, all this kind of stuff. What made you sort of think to sign with a poker talent agency? And, you know, I guess what, what have you enjoyed the most, you know, being part of that ride for all these years? You know, it's funny, right? Because um, I've been with Poker Royalty since 2004, right? So yeah. we're talking almost 20 years. And I'm one of their longest standing clients. I mean, I think it's me, Antonio, and like Doyle is like, and Phil Helmuth. I'm sorry, I forgot Phil. How could I forget but Phil? I think Phil was Brian's first client. Antonio was a second and I was like the and fourth Daniel, or something right? like yes. that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And oh, and, Dan and Daniel and Daniel, Jesus. Yeah. So it's like, <laughs> if you look at who I'm amongst though, it's Phil, Daniel, Antonio, and then like me, right. I kind of like, you know, I, I don't really belong, you know, in, in that, in the, that list of names, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm going to be real, you know, my accomplishments are not like those three, but for some reason I've been lucky enough. So when uh, I was at Binion's and I got second in the main event. That was right, you know, right was the year after the moneymaker year, but it wasn't a full year from when it had aired on TV. It was like a few months later. And poker was the hottest new thing or about to be actually, because 2005 was kind of where it ramped. So Brian, the owner and founder of Poker Royalty, uh, president, CEO, whatever, he was really smart. And he was there looking for people worth signing, you know, people who he thought had potential to be marketable. And, you know, poker at the time was a fledgling game. And I think it could have used some young blood because most of the players you watched back then weren't young. I was one of the first like young ones. And uh, Brian approached me and he said, hey, man, you know, you got a lot of potential for different things in, in the world. Uh, I recognize your talent. And are you interested? Would you like to sign with me? And I didn't hesitate because at the time I didn't know any better. but Thankfully, I didn't. And he was just his approach, how he told me what he, who he represented. You know, Phil Helmuth was with him, and I met Phil Helmuth there. I was like, oh, okay. He's like, yeah, this is Phil. And Phil's like, hey, kid, you know. And it was the night before the final table because I remember Phil was sweating bullets because if I won, I would have broke his record for being the youngest main event champ. 
So Phil was like, I'm rooting for you, but not to win. Cause you know, I would have been the youngest main event world champ, but the fact that he had Phil with them and he represented, I think he still, he had represented Daniel at the time. And Antonio was one of my heroes. I'd watched him win the LAPC earlier that year. And he's like, these are my clients. I want to represent you. I can get you a lot of opportunities, a lot of sponsorship deals. And I said, you know what, let's do it. And we signed on and Brian is one of my, you know, longest friends, especially in Vegas. He's helped me in numerous situations, got me many opportunities, always looks out for me. I mean, I, I wouldn't have be where I am today without Brian and Poker Royalty, which is, I am forever indebted. I think, I mean, as long as they'll keep me as a client, I'll be with them forever. Anytime I get opportunities, people come to me like, hey, we got this thing we want you to do, sign here. And I'm like, mm, got to go through my agency. And they're like, well, I'm like, go to Poker We don't want to deal with agencies. I'm like, can't do it then. I'm like, I do it. I run everything through them because they bring me opportunities. So I bring all my opportunities. I mean, he's a lawyer. They look at contracts. You know, they've, like you say, they got me on King of Vegas. They've got me numerous. I was actually one of the longest 10 years of sponsorship of anybody. I was with Bodog right after and they signed me for a nice contract right after my main event went. Because at the time, everybody was a poker stars, Moneymaker, Raymer, because they were winners. I actually qualified on poker stars, but Bodog came with more money. Thanks to Brian. I signed with Bodog. I was with Bodog from 2005 all the way up until I think it was 2009 or was it 10? But my Poker Stars contract was negotiated. We knew Bodog was terminating on like the 30th of a month. And we had negotiated to start Poker Stars the literal next day. Like wow. I didn't have a day off. And I was with Poker Stars for like another six or seven years or something like that. I think five years, something. I don't have the exact terms, but if you look at my tenure of sponsorship, uh, I think no one had an un, a streak that from like 05 all the way to 014, like it was like or 11 straight years without a break. Like someone had always always moved. And then Poker Stars, obviously, when they didn't have any more U.S. relations before they opened Jersey, they asked sure. if I wanted to move to Jersey. I didn't want to move to Jersey to kind of help start that up. They're like, well, if you're not going to move to Jersey, we'll have a lot of use for you. And I said, understandable. We we amicably split. You know, I, I still love Poker Stars. I wish we had them in America. If we had them in Vegas, I'd be playing on them. But uh, that's all thanks to Brian, man. Brian gets me all the opportunities. Anytime I need anything, I go to him for advice. He's just a good friend and a smart guy. And and, and James, his partner now, James wasn't there the very in the very beginning, but James has been there for quite a long time. And those two guys, Brian and James, are the best in the business. Yeah, James Sullivan, shout out. Great, great agency, wonderful people. And I love that you were able to sort of uh, share a little bit what that ride's been like. Um, I know you're going to be picking up your daughter soon. I want to make sure we get in some community questions uh, from our- Yeah, family. I still got 24, 25 minutes. Okay, cool. So um, I just want to ask then, let's do- two maybe maybe two or two more of my own because we have a bunch of questions from our uh from our uh forum members um that master chef stuff uh okay just a, a couple rapid fires and then my last question that we'll get uh who is the friendliest player we like to do this a friendliest poker podcast in town who is the friendliest player you've ever played against Ooh. I feel like there's so many. I'm trying to think. There's somebody. There's got to be somebody that sticks out. That's just like you can do a couple. Nicest. Of time. <laughs> God, why am I drawing blanks here? You know, like it's it's weird because if I think if I looked at like a list of tournament results, I could remember like who they are. I'm trying to think. Uh, it's, why is no one drawing a blank? I mean, I get along with everyone, so everyone's pretty friendly. But I, I've seen people I get along with who are kind of you know. But like for myself, who's the friendliest player? God, we can come back to it. It might come to you. Yeah, yeah, we have to come back to that. Okay, I, I'm drawing. 
Have you got a favorite poker room in Las Vegas or in the U.S. at which to play? Oh, yeah. Uh, the Aria, man. The Aria is just a cut above the rest. I mean, the Bellagio, you know, hits me in the heart because that's where I won my WPT. But again, that was in the Fontana Lounge, which was the greatest thing in the world. It was a, a room, like a lounge with fountains outside and windows and sunlight. And uh, they closed it, turned it into a nightclub. That being said, Aria, just the way it's run, it's it's world-class. The food is great. The room is great. The staff treats you well. Sean, the poker boss, is the best in the business. They've got the Poker Go Studio, which I've got a lot of, you know, now I've been playing in lately over there for different events. Really top-notch. It's just a world-class place to play. Shout-out to the Borgata, though. I used to love playing at the Borgata. Uh, I haven't been there since the pandemic, but I used to always love playing there and have great success also, but I haven't been in many years. Right, good, good to have uh, multiple rooms where you where you feel at home. You did mention uh, Sean. He was actually guest number two, folks, uh, after this episode. If you want to listen to another great one, Sean was uh, episode number two here on Cards Chat. Uh, one more question from me, then we'll switch to the forum members. Um, just, you know, out of curiosity, you know, you know, for looking forward, you know, another couple months now, we've got the World Series coming. If, you know, whether it's that and you know your schedule or anything else you may like to share that you've got on the horizon uh, that you're working for, you know, working with, you said you got a lot of NFT and crypto stuff that you're involved in. I don't know, something like that. Um, No projects really for like public. I just invest in things. I research and try to get my get my get my hand in everything. Um, I just find I find technology interesting. I find, you know. Just I like to learn about new stuff and new new areas. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as you know, myself, uh, I'm going to be playing the World Series. Obviously, I think a full schedule. As long as I'm thirsty and hungry and feeling it, you know, uh, my daughter will be with her her mother. My girlfriend is ready for the schedule. I, you know, she's she's she's. I mean, I've got I've got a I got a new girlfriend. I wouldn't say new again. Like we've been together almost 15 months, but she's so supportive, and it feels so awesome to have someone that genuinely has your back and understands and is there for you. And she's like a big fan of me playing poker. I wouldn't say a poker fan yet. She wants to learn, but she doesn't know all the rules, but it's kind of cool because she picked up a lot just from watching me. Like she came to the world series at my stud final table. And by the end of it, you know, now she, she thinks stud kind of was the only variant of poker. So she's like, Oh, why are the cards down or whatever? So <laughs> she's this huge support for me. So I know like the summer I'm expecting like to have a really good summer because I'm not going to, I'm going to not have to worry. My daughter will be with her mom. My girlfriend's always trying to bring me lunch and food and dinner and if you need anything, bring me a coffee, making sure I'm fed and, and comfortable and happy. So having that support, you know, my mom will be there playing. It's just, I think it'll be fun. I looked at the schedule. It's funny. I always get excited to look at the schedule and I start going like, Ooh, I want to play that. I want to play that. I want to play that. And I'm realizing it's like every damn tournament. So I finally realized that after the November World Series. So now when the schedule came out, I didn't even load it up. Someone said the highlights. I was like, man, I'm, I want to play it all. Like, I'm sure I'll sign up for whatever I'm available for. Um, I don't play high rollers quite yet, which is something I've been thinking about a lot, you know, especially looking at like uh, the U.S. Poker Open results recently. You know, I've always felt there's not a lot of edge there. And but it does seem like a good time. The camaraderie amongst those players, it seems fun. Now it's strange to have fun and be losing five figures. So I know if I were to start playing high rollers, I would want to put in the work uh, yeah. before I jump in that. And there's a lot of work studying, you know, ranges, solvers. There's a lot of work that I don't do currently. And I would have to dedicate the time to do that if I was going to get into that. I mean, I know I'm capable, you know, not to toot my own horn, but I'm, I'm a smart guy. I can, sure. I can learn if the tools are there to learn from, which they are. Uh, I just don't know right now if I have the time to put in it. 
you know, like I say, being a father, having homework, I would almost have to dedicate a certain set amount of time to just studying poker on and the off time. If I can start doing that, I wish I, you know, what I really would like would be a network of, of other players to kind of work with. But a lot of those guys keep a lot of their information to themselves because it's a small yeah. community and, you, you know, you're playing against people. You don't want to teach your opponents. But maybe if I, you know, had a buddy or a partner or a partner with a current high stakes grinder, you know, who was willing to share some info, share some knowledge that would even make it accelerate the process. But I might start dabbling in some high rollers uh, here in the next year or so. But we'll see. Like we all know, uh, you know, game, game selection is so important. If you're going to be uh, swimming with the sharks, you want to be one yourself. So I uh, wish you good luck with, with that. Um, folks, we're going to turn to the next segment of the show where we ask all of you in our Cards Chat community, uh, what questions would you like to ask our guests? There's a dedicated thread in the Cards Chat forums for this. So as we announce who our guests will be, please be sure to send in your questions. We've got, I think, half a dozen or so uh, folks who sent in questions. We'll try to get in as many as possible, at least one from each person. Um, Shells, Shells, thank you very much for sending this one on. Uh, I didn't ask you any MasterChef questions, David, because I knew uh, the community members wanted to. Uh, Shells, being a huge fan of MasterChef, it was awesome and entertaining to see you finish in the top three of that competition. When did you begin to take cooking? so seriously and what was the most difficult part of the competition for you so people don't believe this but i would say a year before i was cast on that show the only thing i knew how to cook was eggs and i seriously it, it, it started as a hobby um being oh. kind of like the nerd i am watch i randomly stumbled across like a youtube video on a cooking on a recipe and I watched it briefly and then went to like the next thing. And then one time a recipe caught my eye and I was like, oh, I bet I can make that. So I wrote down the ingredients. I went and got the stuff. I think it was a, it was a pasta with like our lamb ragu. I went and got all the ingredients and I tried to make it and it was pretty good. And I had like my wife at the time and my friend over and they ate it and they loved it. And seeing that I was able to create something that put a smile on their faces was a cool feeling. I was like, I created this and they're all like, beaming like oh this is really good so i was like i should make something else so i just kind of started watching youtube videos and reading blogs about recipes and just making more stuff with no plan of it going anywhere and don't know if i was necessarily any good i still don't know if i was actually really that good coming into mastership now i cook all the time and i i was telling my girlfriend the other day i'm like i wish i knew what i do now and was on that show because i would crush it even she's like well you already did well i'm like yeah but i would i think i would be way you know whatever but and then eventually a casting director from the show, The King of Vegas that you mentioned, saw that I posted on Instagram a few of my dishes and she reached out and said, hey, we're coming to Vegas. We're doing auditions for MasterChef. And I was like, what the hell is that? And she's like, it's a cooking show I'm doing. She's like, would you come audition? And I was like, yeah, I'll think about it. Well, it turns out my daughter at the time, who was four, three, three, was a fan of MasterChef Junior. And she's like, dad, you should, you know, I told her about, it. I was talking to someone and she heard me. You should go. I think you would win. You're the best cook in the world, dad. And I was like, uh. Yeah. So she's like, why won't you go? And I was like, okay, I'll try for her. Cause like, you can't, you have to try when your kids want you to try something, you look like a coward, you know? <laughs> so I tried and next thing you know, I made it on the show and I was it's there. And the, I would say the hardest part for me though, would be, you know, what people don't realize is you're away. You know, I went out to audition. And they're like, okay, come out to the live part of the audition after the Vegas audition. Now there's round two. It's in LA. They're like, pack a bag for eight weeks. Cause if you make it on the show, you're not coming back. Wow. So I landed in like early January and immediately they take your phone, you're sequestered 
and then you start the, the live interview process and they narrow it down to the cast. And then when they do this, you never get your phone back. Now that the show is starting oh and the show God. starts and you don't get to, you get like one phone call on Sunday to your family for like wow. 10 minutes. So I didn't get to really talk to my daughter. I was single at the time. I didn't get to talk to my daughter or my mom. Uh, I saw them at the, like one of the shows, they had them both on. And in the finale, they had them both on. But again, I'm there. I was there for like seven weeks without ever sequestered, no phone, no idea what's going on in real life. You know, you oh, wake yeah. up at 5 a.m. You have to be in the lobby You at a hotel. You're stuck in your room with nothing to do. You get on a bus, you go to a, a set, you do makeup and hair, you sit in a room, you can't talk to each other because they have all these strict rules. So you just sit there in quiet for all day. You get dragged out onto a set. They turn the cameras on, action! And now right. you're cooking and you don't, you're like, oh my God, you're freaking out. You make the dish, you get judged. You don't get to hang out with Gordon. You know, you don't get to kibitz and talk to him. As soon as the lights go off, he storms off to a trailer. They shuttle you back to a room for interviews and then back to your hotel at night at night. They tell you to order room service. You eat room service at Marriott, which has like eight things. And after weeks and weeks, you're eating the same crap. You go to bed, you repeat. And it's just like, wow, that's this, rough, this sucks. This yeah. Like my big, I wouldn't do it again. I'm glad I did it. I learned a lot about myself. I always say I have no regrets. And my biggest takeaway was I learned that humans can do so much more than we think we can. <laughs> you know, if you told me the first challenge was a team challenge of two teams of 20 of us or two teams of 15 or something like that, we had to make three course meal for a hundred guests for a wedding. And here's a list of ingredients. Go, you have two hours. You told me we would pull that off. I'd be like, no way in hell. Right. Right. We somehow pulled it off and we, we did this over and over and over and over, and over again, keep pulling off these challenges to the point where I'm like, wow, we're, we are operating at like 20% of what we actually can do right. because we're not ever put to the fire. Right. We're not ever put to, you have this crazy task to do. You have one hour and you, you, if you get it done, if you don't get it done, you're out. Like how often are we have some parameters like that put on us in life? Not really. Like you never, you get things you get told, the things we try to achieve, most people do that they know they can succeed at because they don't want to fail. You don't ever get put to that kind of test very often. Not most people in their daily lives. We had this going on day after day after day and we kept succeeding as a group. As in, sure, somebody would get last, but they still succeeded. They still did it, right? They still achieved the task. It's like, holy crap, we can actually do this. And by the end of it, you're like, I can do anything. So you, I came out of there being like, man, if you really put your mind to it, you can do so much more than you think you can. And I think that's my biggest takeaway. And that's the lesson I try to tell other people. Like, you have no idea what you can really accomplish. Like, if you put the constraints on, you can, you can pop out something magical. Now, I wouldn't do it again, but I'm thankful I went. That's the lesson I learned. When people ask me, hey, should I go on MasterChef? My answer is usually... Probably not. And I say that. Yeah, you, <laughs> I'm like, you really have to sacrifice. A lot of people who went on that show no longer had a job when they went back. A lot of people who went on that show, their relationship at home was strained. There were multiple people who ended up getting a divorce when they went back. Because when you're away from your partner, your wife, for seven or eight weeks, you can't talk to them. That puts a strain on you, right? And then you come back and people are thinking different things. I'm not saying it always happens. And I'm not saying that, you know, that they were in the right. I'm just saying there were consequences to being separated and sequestered for that long. Like I said, a lot of people lost their jobs and they went on there with the hopes of, oh, well, I'm going to be a culinary superstar when I come out. And unfortunately, that's not the case for almost 99% of people on that show. You know, the winners, maybe, you know. So I say I don't recommend it for most, but if you can sacrifice, then it's awesome. 
and now I got to move up because she is walking out, but I don't okay. know how to short. But, but no, so that's, you know, that's what I learned. Why does this thing go to reverse? <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, that's how I did it. And what I would say the hardest part was being mm-hmm. away and being solo. A fascinating look behind the scenes. Do we have, how many uh, questions do we have time for? Because you said she's walking out. So. I mean, you, listen, she, she'll she sit here and listen and laugh. Okay. Keep going. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I just want to make sure it don't take your time. Uh, Chica Bonita has a very interesting question for you. Uh, Chica Bonita says, I know you collect crosswords. Why do you do this? What is the purpose for this? And why did you start that hobby? I hope they're correct with their research. No. I I enjoy a crossword here and there, but like, no, like if I see one sitting around and I'm in the airport and there's a newspaper, I'll pick it up and finish it. But no, no I don't, worries. I've never talked about it. Like, yeah. Okay. Must be a different it. David Williams. Okay. But, uh, okay. No problem. Move on to the next one. Crystals has a very interesting question. You're a big football fan. Who did you take in the Super Bowl? Oh, I, I do love the the NFL. Uh, I wake up every Sunday at eight thirty to watch the games and bet. And uh, I had the Bengals with the points, which won in a rather large position on Bengals money line, which lost. But the net result was still a W because the, the, the cover the cover was nice. So, oh, I you enjoyed the game. Oh yeah, the game was great. I watched it with some friends at the. I always go to like the casino ballroom parties. I went to the one at MGM, and nice. uh, yeah, it was great. Nice. You know, I wish that last play didn't go the way it went. And we, you, you and many, many, money. many, many, many people. So. I mean, <laughs> hitting that money line would have been, woo, it would have been yeah. nice. But like I said, we still, mm-hmm. with the points, it was the money line was like a little bonus bet. I, I hear that. Okay. Uh, Pirate Glenn. He's um, got a bunch of questions here. Okay, I like this one. Uh, what dreams, goals do you still have left to achieve? No, I was telling her. Oh, okay, sure. cool. Uh, what what dreams or goals do you still have left that you'd want to achieve, whether uh, in poker or out of it? You know, it's funny because they say, you know, one of the things, it's, it's nice to set goals you know you can achieve because then you never fail. But if you do that, you never push yourself and accomplish greatness, right? So obviously, you know, I would love to win the main event of the World Series. You know, I got second place in it once. Winning it would be great. But again, the realist in me, the math nerd in me says, well, yeah, but that's like, okay, there's 9,000 players, no matter how good you are, it's still maybe one in 2,000, you know, it's, it's not going to happen, but I still have hope that maybe one day, you know, they'll be like, he's back after 25 years to redeem himself for, you know, 2004. So, you know, that goal would be great, but really, I mean, a more realistic one, which I've come close is I want my dang second bracelet. You know, I got my first in 2006. Uh, Josh Aria is a great friend of mine. He got his second in 2005, like right before me. And we've kind of, our paths are very intertwined. And then this year he snapped off two more in player of the year. And I got close in the beginning and I thought I was going to get my second too. And I'm still stuck on one. And like so many of my friends got their first after me and now they're on three or four or, you know, like grinder grinders, a really good friend of mine. He got his first after me and was he at five or six? And it's just like, five. where yeah. am I going to get my, when am I going to get my second man? <laughs> so I just want to start small. I just want my second bracelet, you know, get that monkey up my back and maybe the flood 
the floodgates open and I get a few more after that. But I just want to get that second one first. You said you've got hopefully a really good summer ahead of you. So perhaps uh, that is in the cards. Uh, we got three more, uh, three more question asked. We'll just ask one from each person. Uh, Bella Donna 05, thank you for submitting this one. Uh, this hopefully is an easy one. Uh, what is your favorite meal to cook? Favorite meal to cook? You know, it's it's an easy one, but it's one that a lot of people don't get right. Is I love grilling a steak. You know, um, a lot of uh, my friends and family, my daughter, my girlfriend, my my friend Theo, they they rave about my steaks. And one of the things I'm good at is is cooking some some beef. You know, I can I can, I can get a good steak. So I really enjoy cooking steaks. I was actually uh, gonna get some dry age ribeyes for me and my daughter for uh, the next day or two. I think maybe for Saturday night grill those up for us because she's a big fan of steak so yeah i like grilling steak that's the tea that sounds good uh louvart or lovart uh, not a name we see that often but it's good to see thank you for submitting this question um we have we know a lot of successful poker players who've transitioned from card games like magic the gathering to poker what is it that you think those other strategy card games offer to aspiring poker players that help make them successful? You know, I think uh, it's a few things. Cause this question is asked a lot, so it's an easy one. Yeah. Um, you know, Magic the Gathering is a strategy card game, but there is a deck. There is shuffling, which means there's luck, which means there's variance, which means the best player doesn't always win. And that's a key thing in poker, right? Like, doesn't matter how good you are. The cards can say if you win or not in one individual hand, obviously. So I think that's a concept that's a lot harder for the average person who doesn't have a game playing background to really accept is that sometimes you may have to make a decision that's plus EV, but it won't work out more often than not. It may not work out right. It, the pot might be giving you the right price at like 30% and you got to get a great price. You got to make that play, but sometimes, you know, you lose it. Whereas most people, it's hard to kind of, conceptualize that like that's even when i explain to my non-game playing friends certain concepts of where you press a small edge you know where they don't they don't want to do it or they they can't do that whereas in magic you learn that's part of the game now that's how you have to be successful it's over repeated iterations you know over time you're going to see that variance realize itself and your success will pay off and you're able to take the losses and take the variance and, and understand that's part of the game i think magic teaches that in addition uh, when we when there used to be large scale tournaments in person, they don't really have them anymore. They stopped at COVID and they haven't really picked up. Uh, I grew up, you know, I cut my teeth on those. Those teach you about those long hours. A lot of those magic tournaments would start at 9 a.m. and you're playing high stakes magic. You know, the tournament, the stakes, of the tournament, or you you lose a few and you're out for 12 hours straight. You know, you're done at dinner time and you got to get up the next day and do it again. And you got to get up the next day if you make it to the third day and do it again. That sounds very similar to a poker tournament, right? Yeah, exactly. And that's a lot, that's really hard for a person who's never, you know, you see people, you see this all the time. They've never played a tournament other than like at their local card room. They come out to the World Series and they they play the main event and they make day three or day four and they're mentally fried. Yeah. And you see people unravel. You're watching the show and this guy just unravels and people who don't know at home are like, oh, that guy played so bad. But you got to give it to him. You're like, this guy's been playing 12 hours a day, three days straight, in addition to whatever else he was playing. It is not easy to keep your mental fortitude, your composure for that long and make good decisions and be on the edge. You're on the edge for all these days anyways, because one wrong decision could just end it all for you. So you're already on the edge and you have to just continually make good decisions and be up against it. It's emotionally draining. It's mentally draining. 
And it's very easy for someone to fall apart. Whereas those of us who played these magic tournaments, you know, I, like I said, I played them for many years. That's a lot easier for us to do because it's just like, oh, we've been doing that since we were kids. Now it's just a few more days added on. I'm used to that. I'm, I'm ready for that. So it's like a, a boot camp in a sense for the endurance, the mental endurance that you need for the poker. Makes sense. We will end off on a little bit more of a playful note. Uh, Risto, two, three, four, name I have never seen before. So thank you very much for sending that one in. Uh, Risto wants to know, David, in MasterChef, you had the luxury of learning from the best chef in the world. But do you think that Gordon Ramsay would be able to succeed at poker if he also was able to learn from some of the best in the world? So let me let me start off. Okay, first of all, I love Gordon. Uh, one of the nicest celebrities I've ever met. Super genuine, like, and like people always ask me, is he scary? You know, he yells and he screams at people. And I will say this: when he yells at people, it is it is out of passion wanting them to do better. Obviously, that's not the best way to handle it. But like when he screams, "Are you an idiot?" or whatever, it's 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 his way of listen, man. I know you can do better, and I think. Around when he us anyways, because he knew we were amateurs. He usually yells at the pros on like Hell's Kitchen. But if he ever got mad at us, like he was able to, we all, I don't think we ever took it personally. We knew it's because he expected better of us because he knew we could do better. But he was super genuine, super nice. You know, he, he loved my daughter. He remembered her name. We ran into each other again later in Vegas. And he was like, David, he remembered who I was, which is crazy because he has so many contestants and cheater. Yeah. How's Liliana? He remembered my wow. daughter's name. So it's wow. like for him to remember that says a lot about the kind of person he is. Now, the second part of that question, or the first part, of it, to learn from the best. We didn't really learn a lot from Gordon. He wasn't in a resource as much as I had hoped he would have been. That would have been amazing. Like I'm watching this show now, I think, or I saw it where they're like, they, they, they work with them and they're on like a three-story building on Fox and they go up and down. That looks cool. We would get brief tidbits. You know, he would, during the competition, see us cooking and run over and go, oh, what are you doing with that? Well, you should try this and kind of walk off. Or if he'd see you struggling, give you a tip, which is nice. But we didn't really get to learn from Gordon. So I wish we did, but I want to clear that up. Now, do I think he could be a good poker player? You know, I don't know. I know he's smart enough. I know he learns well and quick, but he's also very emotional, right? And to be a good poker player, you got to be able to check those emotions. I don't know if he could take a beat and be able to put it aside and keep plugging away without getting emotional, right? He he is emotional. I think mean, I don't think he would be offended to be saying that. That's what made him the star he is today, his emotions. The guys, he, he, he wears it on his sleeve. And there are poker players who do that who are successful. So I'm not to say that he would. he's drawing dead. I just, you know, wouldn't put my money on him unless he was able to rein that in. He is very intelligent and learns quick and re- remembers things. Like, it was the biggest blessing ever to watch him cook on the fly like there were times where he would be like oh, i'm gonna cook in this challenge too or we would just ask a question he would whip something out and just do it and we're like holy god how the hell did you effortlessly create that dish in 20 minutes out of nothing like it's like watching beethoven compose a symphony or whatever i mean it was unbelievable so he's super sharp so i'm not going to say he's drawn dead but i'd say he'd have to learn how to rein in his emotions if he was going to be a successful poker player Good question and good answer. A great note on which to end the show. I want to thank everyone who sent in questions for David Williams. And again, a friendly reminder to all of you out there in the Cards Chat community. We'd love to see you submit your questions for our future podcast guests in the dedicated thread 
on the forums. Guys, if you like the show, please give us a good review on iTunes and spread the word via your social media channels. Uh, David, before we let you go, first of all, thank you again very, very much for your time and uh, for the overtime as well after you've picked up Lily. We appreciate it. Uh, anything else you'd like to share uh, with our community? Uh, you know, no, I mean, I hope that those who listened, you know, got something from this. You know, I, I hope I dropped some tidbits that were helpful uh, in poker and in life, you know, especially about, you know, what you're capable of, what I learned from MasterChef, because that is just such a huge lesson that I think most people won't get, right? Because they just won't have that opportunity because it's easy to just do your day after day, your routine after routine and not take those risks. So hopefully someone is inspired, they take a risk or maybe they, you know, take that risk at the poker table. But other than that, you know, it was a fun chat. It was a cool stroll down memory lane. It also made me realize, you know, how blessed I really am. I don't, not like I forget it, but it's always good to have that refresher and realize, you know, no matter what happens in life, you know, you always got to look at the bright side and say, you know, I'm pretty, I'm pretty blessed. You know, I got a lot of good things going on in my life and I have a lot to be thankful for and to, to, to kind of be mindful of that. So that's it. I'm, I'm happy I was able to do this. You know, I'm very thankful that you reached out to me. Things happen for a reason. Maybe I needed this little uh, this little pick me up to get me ready for the summer. I think uh, you wrote something right about about you wrote something. I, I'm trying to. I'm drawing a blank now, and I, I I responded to you an article about the World Series. You came out and played the eight game. I think is, was it about that one or what? Yes, I might that be mixing was me. A detail that, that was me. Yes. <laughs> yeah, but I'm, I know that was you. But I'm trying to. Think, what was the details? Um, what, it was the circumstance of it. Was it you came to play which event? Uh, well, I didn't really, I don't really play tournaments very much, but basically, uh, Elia Lezra put me in the, uh, eight game, uh, 1500. Yeah. The second, second uh, bracelet event I ever played. Yeah. And I was going to say, uh, those of you who haven't read that, it was probably the best thing I've read in uh, around poker and, that I can remember. Oh, wow. It really touched me. It, no, it really touched me. And it, I, I think I commented that and a few other pros kind of chimed in. So, uh, you know, I'm glad that after that article rereading that i was able to sit and chat with you here oh. i'm glad it worked out and things oh. happen for a reason so that and is, hopefully i see you this summer oh that is especially kind very meaningful i really appreciate you saying that david and yes i certainly hope to see you uh this summer folks you can all see him hopefully at uh Vigny, or at the horseshoe in paris uh, horseshoe. at the world series um and thank you all so much for tuning into another episode of cards chat i'm robbie strasinski you can follow me on twitter at card player life you can follow david on twitter at dw poker i wish you all a wonderful day cards chat the friendliest poker podcast in town from the world's number one poker community.